Can you believe it? We're in the New Testament this week, everybody. So we got 21 weeks in the Old Testament uh, looking at the ups and downs of God's people throughout the years. We are in the New Testament in Matthew, Luke, and John. This is very uh, significant for me because when I was on sabbatical, someone asked me what was the biggest spiritual impact for you when you were on sabbatical. And for me, it was just reading through the Gospels. And there was a Sunday where when Dave Lynn was here speaking, our district superintendent, and I was listening to the stream on my phone while fishing with my Bible open. And I just thought, this is good. This is a good word. And I shut it down and just sat with my Bible, with my uh, bobber in the lake, trying to catch some fish, and just finding Jesus again in his word. Finding Jesus again in his word. And it's such a powerful thing to, to get into these Gospels. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus's life. People that like to do form criticism and, you know, go really deep into the text that I've, that I've read and sometimes use that research to try to discredit the text. Um, they're always talking about, oh, you know, this story in, in, this, in this gospel is different from the story in this gospel, you know, or, or this couldn't possibly happen. This is out of chronological order, or, you know, we, we know this part was not authentic to the original manuscript. There's all that kind of stuff. Although I will tell you that I have read all that stuff, and I always leave with greater faith afterwards. So I'd, sometimes people say, and this is my point. I'm like, and what is your point? I don't, I don't get it. This actually makes it more beautiful. Because it's like you have four camera, camera people filming the life of Christ from different angles, from different, from different places. You have Luke, who is an educated doctor. You have Matthew, who was a tax collector. You have uh, John, disciple Jesus loved. And, and John Mark, who at one point, I think that he, uh, he embarrassed himself in there by running around in his underpants. True story. <laughs> it says, it's, actually, true story. You should read the book of Mark. It's funny. They're, they're, these Gospels are such human stories about Jesus, written with different styles, different levels of education. But as I was praying about today's message, I wanted to share with you the thing that the Spirit put on my heart is when you read through these Gospels, you, you get to meet the same Jesus through each of them. It's the, they might be different styles, maybe different, different content, different chronology. These things are not terribly important. They really aren't. These are authentic books written from four different perspectives, and you find the same Jesus in all of them. The same Jesus in all of them. This is the Jesus that we can know today. That's why most of the time I don't talk in the past tense when it comes to Jesus, because we're talking about Jesus. He's living and active in our world today. Christ's Spirit, which is also interchangeably known as the Holy Spirit, indwells believers upon their salvation. And the Holy Spirit is nothing more and nothing less than the Spirit of Christ himself. So when you're encountering Jesus in the New Testament, seeing him interacting with lots of people, especially in a gospel like Luke, which is very people-centered, uh, you get to see, you get to see the gentleness, you get to see the kindness, you get to see the Spirit of, of Jesus, the one and only. And this is what all of the scripture have, have been foreshadowing and pointing to. You know, the Old Testament has highlighted God's covenants with his people, God's faithfulness to that covenant, and then the the massive cycle of people following God, then falling away from God, falling, and then falling into captivity or falling into discipline. All of this has told us a simple message that people are pr pretty much a wreck. We're pretty much a wreck. And uh, I was kind of hoping that by, by the time we hit Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we'd find a successful human story. But all we find is partial success, partial following. We have some highlights like King David, but even he, as we know, had, has issues. Someone's going to have to do something big to save us. Someone's going to have to come and take care of business. And all of the Old Testament, all of those failures that many of you were just exhausted by reading over and over again in your small groups, they all point to the fact that we can't save ourselves. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And we can come to know Jesus today as we, as we, as we read in this text. The living Christ is among us, or two or more are gathered in Jesus' name. He is there with them. So he's with us right now. He's indwelling each believer. He's ready to 
lead you and guide you and, and love on you, just like Jesus would if he was here in person. He said that it was better that he went and ascended to be with the Father, because if he didn't ascend after his crucifixion and resurrection, then he wouldn't be able to send the Holy Spirit. This is better. We all have the Spirit. Jesus is alive. He's aware of what's going on in our world today and how we got here. He's aware of, of your life and aware of you and how you got here. Um, he is he is here. But these different, these different Gospels just provide different camera angles, different kind of focuses, and show us the big picture of this person that's so consistent in the pages of the Gospel. And uh, I encourage you to, th- to uh, get into these Gospels yourself, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, last week we, 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 did, we built this wall because uh, we were reading about the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem under Nehemiah. And this temple that was built, not this temple, but the one that Nehemiah rebuilt, existed and persisted until the day of Christ until actually after Jesus' uh, death on the cross, till about 70 AD. This temple, these walls, remained, as far as I'm aware. But by the time that Jesus came on the scene, God's people were in uh, bondage to Roman, the Roman Empire. And the Romans were, were a progressive empire in that they allowed the people that they conquered to, as long as you pay taxes, we don't care if you go to church. The, Jew, the Jewish people were allowed to go to synagogue to worship the way they wanted to. And as long as, as long as no one said, made any counterclaims as someone else might be Lord, or they stopped paying their taxes, the government kind of left them alone. Last week we read from Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi, and that, that story ends, and then there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of God's silence. There's no written, recorded words that God spoke. There's no, no real prophets, no kings, no special leaders. Uh, there, there were things that happened in there, and sure, surely God was at work in history. Uh, things like the story of Hanukkah comes from those 400 years of silence and the history of the Jewish people. But there is no word from God over these 400 years. Um, God is, is silent during this period. But it's a time of, of, of upheaval. You know, as you might imagine from seeing the, the, the end of Malachi, you might imagine we're about to come into a time of, of difficulty again. And yes, uh, it was a, a violent place, lots of bloodshed. And what this did was it intensified the desires of all people for a savior, to someone to save us. Longing for a Messiah intensified during those 400 years. And by the time Jesus came along, it had been systematized. Different people had different views of how it would look, you know. They were, they were ready for it. But most of them were not ready for Jesus because their systematized doctrines that they extrapolated from the Old Testament was not accurate, and so they missed Christ. And the Old Testament and Malachi we saw ends with this teaser in Malachi 4-5. It says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord come. And Jesus later identifies this Elijah character in Matthew eleven fourteen when he says, if you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. No, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's go back uh, to John's gospel. And we're going to take a peek at what this gospel says about Jesus' birth. And yes, it is Christmas in March. Christmas in March. It wasn't really in December anyway, probably. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. Notice the capital W. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So for all of you who have been students of the Word of God, our very first week we read the creation account from Genesis 1. And this way of writing is meant to point you back to that creation account listen to the language in in Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Very, very similar to this language here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was the light of God. Now, John is saying through this kind of matching of phraseology that Jesus is not just another story of God building and rebuilding, which God had been doing throughout the Old Testament among his people. This is not the story of just another prophet who comes to warn God's people of something or other. This is not just a rebuilt temple. But Jesus coming on the scene is actually a signal that God's work of new creation is beginning in Christ. After all this churning of, of, of history, God is doing a new creation through Jesus. And in this creation story, Jesus is the life-giving son who gives light to all people. John also wants to make it very clear to us that Jesus, the Word, was with God in the beginning. And that through Jesus, the Word, all things were made in the original creation story as well. So we're supposed to take this data about Jesus here and say, oh, that's what was going on back in Genesis. God was creating through his creative word, Jesus Christ, as a spirit hovered over the, the darkness and the water. That God was in all of his glory and every member of the Trinity working at that time. So Jesus is not just another story, uh, not just another ch churning of the history, but he was the word that was with God in the beginning. And through Jesus, all things were made in the original creation. He was with God in the beginning, it says, and through him all things were made. And John is punctuating here what Je Jesus clearly explains later on when he says in John 10, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He and the Father are one. Let's move on. It's a new creation story, and Jesus is God, the creative word, who's doing a new creation. Let's continue in John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, there it is again, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. John the Baptist, you know, Jesus' cousin, who's talked about in this, in this passage, he was the Elijah, mentioned in last week's reading from Malachi. And John testifies as to who Jesus was, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Many people misunderstand who Jesus, misunderstood who Jesus was in his life. And many of us misunderstand who Jesus is today. But John promises here that for those who have eyes to see, they will see Jesus. Or as he says, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John is so excited about the good news of what Jesus can do, that right in the beginning part, he's saying, this is, this is the end of the story. This is what God can do through Jesus. He can save people who believe in his name, and they can become children of God. Let's read on in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, 
has made him known. Now, this is big. Not only is this passage signaling that Jesus is the beginning of a new creation and that God is doing in his world, it's also signaling that Jesus is also the one who will bring a new law and a new covenant, just like Moses gave God's law in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jesus is revealing something known as grace and truth. And the scriptures say it this way, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John finishes his statements about Jesus saying, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is so clearly worded, there can be no doubt. Now John is declaring that Jesus himself is God. That though no, though no one has ever seen God, who is a spirit, Jesus makes God known to humans clearly. Jesus can reveal God to us because Jesus is God himself in the flesh. And thus, what more of a relationship can you have than being one with yourself, right? He is God in the flesh. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There it is, that cr- new creation, new law. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. So just as we see in John's gospel, we also see clearly that God is doing a new work of creation in his son Jesus, who is in fact God himself, revealed in human flesh, that through Jesus, God is giving us grace and truth in the new covenant. The author of Hebrews goes further. He, he actually identifies Jesus as God's final word to humanity. Final word. No more Bible being written, right? Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. He says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, We saw that many times in our readings, right? And many times in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, as we've read the Bible over these last 21 weeks, we've seen God speak and lead through gifted prophetic leaders who functioned in in prophecy, Uh, people like Moses and Joshua. We've seen God speak through dedicated prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, We've seen God speak through judges like Gideon, and we've seen God speak through kings like King David. And those, their words are just all recorded for us in the scriptures. But after a 400-year silence, between the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, no leaders, prophets, judges, or kings have spoken for God during that time. In this new work of creation God is doing, Jesus Christ, we learn from the day that Christ was born until the present day in which you and I live, that God has given us a final word. Through Jesus Christ, God has given us a final word. And the final word is God himself making his dwelling to be among us through Jesus Christ. No more scripture is going to be written from here after, and no scripture has been written since that belongs in the canon of the Bible. After that first generation of Christ followers in the book of Acts, in the letters. Because Jesus is the final word to them. They faithfully gave it to us. And now we look back at what they wrote and say, that's the final word, Jesus Christ. This relationship, this person is what it's all about. Is the final word. If you look in, in the book of Revelation, it actually says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. Now it's talking about the revelation, but it could be talking about the whole scripture. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. 
If anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. That's a pretty, pretty harsh warning. And the reason is because Jesus is the final word of God. There are no new prophets. Other, other religions that, that, um, that say, no, we have a new prophet, a new better prophet. So it's like Jesus and this, Jesus and this guy. No, it's not Jesus and your favorite author. It's just Jesus, you know? Your favorite author should point you to Jesus. He's the final word, right? So this is not meant to be a religious or fear-driven thing. It's meant to be a, what are you, stupid? Is that, that's not a good word to say anymore. But don't be, don't be foolish. If God says it's the final word, don't be foolish, right? Stick with Jesus. So we see, we see who Jesus was. He was Son of God, God in the flesh. We see the why of Jesus' birth and why he came to make his dwelling among us. In Matthew 1 and 2, we see the how of how this all came to pass, which is a story that is so familiar to us that we we miss out on the great impact that it could have. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 1. And I'm going to go ahead and read the genealogy that a lot of times we want to skip over, that's cumbersome to us. Listen for the names that we've looked at over the last 21 weeks. They're all in here, right? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zephyrah and, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon, where we just were. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Joseph, Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Jesus did not appear randomly, but he came as prophesied through the genealogy of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and King David, these big names that we see. Jesus came from the leaders and prophets and judges and kings that we've been reading about over the last 21 weeks. He came through Rahab the prostitute and other more unsightly characters that perhaps we would want to keep out of our genealogy and that the world has looked down on, but that God has lifted up and honored. Many people in Jesus' family line had received and shared the word of God. But Jesus was the word of God in the flesh. Many of the people in, in um, Jesus' genealogy knew God to some degree. But Jesus was God in his fullness. Jesus was also the fulfillment of the covenant promises made to all of his ancestors. And was, in the, was the fulfillment of the prophecies made by the ancestors we've been reading about over the last 21 Sundays. Remember this covenant that God made with Abraham? The Lord said to Abram, go, to your country, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We've seen God's covenant people rise up to follow God, then fall away in idolatry shortly after. We've had high hopes seeing God's people enter the promised land, only for it all to be lost because of the sin and disobedience and idolatrous hearts of the people. We've seen God's people disciplined and deported, living as captives in enemy-occupied territory. We've seen them build and rebuild the temple, build and rebuild their homes, and seen them miss many opportunities to be a blessing to the surrounding nations that they were among. You know, to put it mildly, watching God's people follow and then fall away a short time later is very, is very defeating to read about. And we ask ourselves, is anyone going to get this thing right? Will anyone live up to the covenant that God made with Abraham? And the answer is that finally, in Jesus Christ, God's covenant will be fulfilled perfectly. Along with the satisfaction of God's justice through the cross, which had kept God's people distant from him, in Christ, the promises and covenant are finally coming true after generations of people who could never get it right for very long. And what can we learn about the how question, about how God came to us in Christ? This is truly the most remarkable feature of his uh, advent. In Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Remember, Messiah fervor was at an all-time high. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they responded. This is what the prophet's written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and pre presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. How God chose to come into the world says a lot about the heart of God for his people. Most people would not expect God to arrive into his world in such a humble way. Born outside in a cave-like structure among Animals who are feeding and defecating and urinating. Baby Jesus was laid in that scenario. God in the flesh. Born in a social scandal where there was an unwed teenage mother, um, which would have been looked down on very harshly in those days, and celebrated by people society looked down on as being lower class people. You now, in another passage, it talks about 
the shepherds who were watching their flock. Shepherds were, very, were at the bottom of the totem pole as far as prestige in their job. And the angels appeared to the shepherds. And then the magi, these people that are just doing some kind of astrology practices, they, they find out about Jesus. So born a scandal, celebrated by people so that society ignored and looked down on, discovered by these new age practitioners from the East. And Jesus did not break the pattern that was set for him in his birth with the life he lived. But I was reminded this week listening to a Rich Mullins song. He was a homeless man. The hope of the world was on the shoulders of a homeless man. Without a wife or a family, probably had lots of opportunities to have a wife and a family. He didn't take a wife. Refusing to throw rocks at those who society had labeled as hopeless sinners, deserving of death. He didn't throw stones. And we know in retrospect that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to his death on a criminal's cross, riding the foal of a donkey, the same way that Mary rode in to town with him. So if you want to perfectly bookend Jesus' life, came in on a, humble, on a humble steed, and he went to his death on a humble steed. He did not break the pattern of his birth with the way he lived his life. He's showing us something about how God's kingdom is first revealed. You know, it's, it's revealed in, in, in secret places, in dirty places, among the poor, among those who are sick. Jesus said famously, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have not called him to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. He's showing us God's kingdom is, is upside down. It's revealed to people on the fringes. And many of the people that are looking for it with their preconceived theologies and ideas miss it. So this morning, I just, want, I just want this story to impact you once again. God's final word to us is Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. And we see Jesus in his life pointing out sin to people, not to condemn them, but to deliver them. Think of the woman at the well. Grace and truth in equal measure. The full truth than the full grace of God. He's the true light of the world that has come. He's the beginning of a new work of creation that God has been doing from the time of Christ until our present day. And God will complete when he comes back again. He provided purification for sins. And now he sits at God's right hand, interceding for all of us. I don't even know what that looks like. He's interceding for all of us in glory. He is the Savior who describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. And one who comes to all who earnestly seek after him. Who saves and forgives all who turn to him in faith. In short, Jesus is God's heart for us on display in a body like ours. The question that, that is here this morning is, given that this is not a past tense look at Jesus' life, do you know him? Do you know the risen Savior, the kind, gentle, lowly Savior, full of grace and truth, the one who's doing a new creation in our world and wants to involve you in that new creation as well? The good news is you can know him if you turn to him in simple faith, which is why I would invite you to do as the worship team sings over us, and we sing this song together. Whether you're a believer who's lost your way or has lost your, your thirst and hunger to find Jesus, or you've never heard this gospel before, that you can be saved, purified from your sins, and have a relationship with God through Christ, let's turn to Jesus today so that we can answer, yes, we know him. We know him. He's our Jesus.